I'm sure that the church at Corinth did some things right. But it's possible, if not probable, that the problems that they experienced exceeded any good that they might have been doing. In chapter 11, we found Paul saying that their assemblies were for the worse, not for the better. To put it another way, things got so bad in Corinth that it would have been better had they not met at all. I can't think of an evaluation of a local church that would be more damning than that by an apostle. It would be better if you just didn't meet at all. From chapter 1 on, Paul has been answering a series of questions that had come to him from the Corinthians while he's ministering in Ephesus. It seems that the Corinthians had problems with pride, selfishness, a lax attitude toward immorality, filing lawsuits against each other. They had marriages that were on the rocks. They overestimated their own spiritual status, and they refused to allow love to trump liberty. They abandoned the creative order in worship, and they were abusing the most sacred of all Christian ritual, that is the Lord's table. But a pattern has emerged that as we begin chapter 12, we need to consider for a moment because I believe it's probably the root of all of the other problems that I just mentioned. And that is that their pride, their arrogance, their selfishness has manifested itself within the church in disunity. And while that might not sound as severe as having a lax attitude toward immorality or the lawsuits and these other things, pride that results in disunity in a local church is a really bad thing. If you'll recall back to our study in chapter 11, Paul even brings up the idea of the sin that leads to death for the abuse of the Lord's table that has resulted from pride. Don't ever miss the originating factor. Pride and disunity is what was causing their abuse of the Lord's table. Pride and disunity will be what causes the problems that we'll, come, that we'll review here in chapters 12 through 13. Like chapters 8 through 10 formed a unit, so do chapters 12 through 13. But the root problem is the same that we had all the way back in chapter 1. Selfishness, pride, and disunity. It's just manifesting itself now in their abhorrent abuse of spiritual gifts. Given the subject matter, these are by far the most controversial chapters in the first letter to the Corinthians. Pentecostals and Charismatics make up the largest single group of Protestant Christianity worldwide. It's the fastest growing aspect of Christianity. They've done a wonderful job in missions, in evangelism, outreach, it's been my experience that perhaps they haven't done quite as good a job in follow-up as, as probably should have done. But missions are a different subject. A few years ago, I was in India. I was given the topic at a pastor's conference of pneumatology. It's the study of the Holy Spirit. And two-thirds of the roughly 1,000 pastors there were charismatic in their theology. They were attentive. They were receptive. And they were teachable, which means they had humility. In fact, the majority of the people that I minister to in a foreign context all have a charismatic base in their theology. But for most of them, it's just because they haven't considered the issue thoroughly enough. They don't know any better sometimes, but they're good people. I want to make that abundantly clear this morning. 
That time in India, I was concerned. I have to tell you, I prayed about those sessions for months, particularly the session that had to do with the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. How were they going to respond? Because it, it wasn't like there's just two or three in the room. There were six or seven hundred who were charismatic in their theology. How would they respond? After praying about it over and over and over again, and thoroughly preparing and preaching the material primarily that I'll be teaching you, in the next few weeks, from chapters 12 through 14, but a couple of other passages as well. When I got finished with that particular session on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, the 1,000 pastors there gave a rousing ovation, which was, which was stunning to me, which told me that they were teachable. My interpreter, who was a charismatic pastor himself, Pentecostal pastor himself, turned to me and said, I never knew that. Thank you so much for teaching me that. And it's the last time I was there, the last two times I was there. I, I spoke in their church. Very enthusiastic, very wonderful group of people. In these three chapters, the issue of spiritual gifts is important. Paul's going to talk about that quite a bit. Different spiritual gifts and how they're being used and how they're being abused in Corinth because of the disunity. But there is something that is even more central than the abusive factor of spiritual gifts in these three chapters. And if we can get that, then we'll understand what's going on in these three chapters so much better. What's happened so often when people study these chapters, they'll either study these three chapters divorced from the context of the rest of 1 Corinthians, or they'll take chapter 14, or they'll take just a couple verses in chapter 14, and it's no wonder that there's so much confusion in Christianity today on the legitimacy or illegitimacy or what exactly what is happening with this particular spiritual gift. Should we be doing this or should we not be doing this? Why do some churches have this particular activity? Other churches don't have that activity. Are these churches more spiritual than those churches? A lot of these questions can be answered with the general principle, the primary point of our passage today. And I hope that will be enough of a hook to get you to pay very, very close attention. All along, Paul has argued against pride and disunity that has become extremely harmful to the Corinthians and their testimony for Jesus Christ. A church that has disunity in it, that is prideful, that is not loving, has no testimony for Christ or a minimal one. And that's something Paul has been pressing from chapter 1 all the way till now, and he won't stop, really until he gets to chapter 15, when the issue is much more theological there. This section, 12 through 14, this section is continuing on the primary message of pride and disunity are a bad thing in a church. We need to remember that. What Paul will be primarily arguing against in these three chapters is the abuse of spiritual gifts that was caused by pride and disunity in the church. Just like he was arguing in the previous chapter against the abuse of the Lord's table that was motivated by, you guessed it, pride and disunity. There is a cure for pride and disunity in a local church and all the manifestations. And that cure is one word, and it's love. There's a better way to live. There is a more excellent way, Paul will say, and that's the way of love. Pride and love, in Paul's eyes, are mutually exclusive. Don't go together. Paul's been leading up to this all the way since chapter 1. Love is the answer to the destruction that is brought upon by pride. Love's the answer. 
on, on our CDs that we have out front on the lessons from 1 Corinthians. The three words at the top are learn, love, live. Paul wants them to learn some things, but as a result of that learning, he wants them to love. It's not that complicated. He wants them to love God and to love their fellow believer. And if they will learn those things, and if they will love as a result of what they've learned, then all these other things are going to work out. The marriage problems, the disunity, the lawsuits, the, the, the way that they were participating in abusing the Lord's table, abusing these spiritual gifts, all of it will be worked out if they'll just love one another. It's no accident that the love chapter, the greatest love chapter in all the Bible, comes in the middle of this very section. He's going to stop and he's going to, oh, it's almost like he says, time out. I can't wait to the end of the letter to tell you this. I'm going to tell you right now, the answer to all this is love. And you can do all these other things. You can have all these wonderful ministries. But if you're not loving, you've got nothing. He doesn't say that if you're not loving, you're okay. You're, you know, probably making a C plus, you know, C minus, maybe B minus. No, he's not saying that. Without love, you've got nothing. Now, that's true on an individual basis. But remember, he's talking to a local church. And Paul's talking to us too. If we don't have love as a local church, we've got nothing. Several years ago, a person through another friend approached me and in a derisive way said, well, Bumgarner pastor says, love church. And I said, what would you like us to be? <laughs> would you like us to be the mean church or the hateful church? That's not an insult to me to say we're the love church. That's fine. I know he meant it that way. But that person has some learning to do and some loving to do so that they can live the abundant life that Jesus Christ has promised. We're getting right to the core of this letter now, if you haven't been able to tell. Love is the solution to disunity. Whether it's found in an ancient church like Corinth or whether it's found in Houston, Texas, in our church today, love is the cure. This is a timeless message with a timeless solution. The passage begins... Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. That first phrase, now concerning, indicates that Paul has changed subjects. He's no longer on the subject of the abuse of the Lord's table. However, he is still on the broader subject of pride and disunity causing problems in the church. The term agnoeo, which is translated unaware in the New American Standard, could also be translated ignorant. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. I suspect that most modern translators preferred the word unaware because it's a bit softer. It's a bit general, more gentle than I don't want you to be ignorant. But to tell you the truth, Paul's not trying to be soft here. He's coming to the core of his message. Remember how upset he was in chapter 11 as he wrote it. I'm, I feel fairly certain he didn't put his pen down, walk around the block, and come back after he was calmed down and write chapter 12. I would imagine he kept going. So maybe ignorant is better here. Because remember, they needed to learn before they could love, and then they could finally live that abundant life. Remember, part of the problem in Corinth was that they thought that they knew more than they really knew. They thought they loved more than they really loved and they thought that they were more mature in the faith than they really were. And they didn't know as much about spiritual gifts as they thought they did. Then in verses 2 through 3, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to dumb idols, however you were led. 
Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. These verses almost, in the, in the flow of the passage, they almost seem like they don't belong, almost like it's a parenthetical statement. And it, and it is, in a way, a bit of a parenthetical statement. But to help them with what they don't know, Paul starts off, like any good teacher, with what they do know regarding this subject. They knew about idolatry from their life before Christianity. And they knew that idols don't speak. They're dumb idols in that sense. Therefore, any knowledge that's attained from an idol or from pagan worship about spirituality during their previous life is, is totally inadequate for the current discussion. I'm going to talk about this more a bit later. But in Corinth and the surrounding regions, the Greek religions were called mystery religions. And in these mystery religions, that one was the primary one was at Delphi. It's pronounced in English a lot of times Delphi, but the proper pronunciation would have been Delphi. There was an oracle there. There were priestesses that were there. And part of the worship, a great part of the worship at Delphi was ecstatics. And the priestesses would, would babble along in, the, in languages that were uh, phrases that had no translation. They would just be babbling phrases, and they would get very, very worked up, and they would dance around like whirling dervishes. And that was part of the whole Corinthian culture. Because those people were considered spiritual in their pagan life. Now, we're going to talk about it more later. But in general, what Paul's doing is he's saying here, listen, all that stuff you learn from paganism, don't carry that into the church. It's going to be a mistake to do that. And that's what he's really talking about here. It, also in the mystery religions of Corinth and the surrounding areas, there were certain people in those religions and those cults that were considered inherently more spiritual than others. You know what I mean by that? They were inherently more spiritual. Not practically more spiritual. Or not functionally more spiritual. But inherently more spiritual. Just by virtue of their position. Not by their actions or not by their thoughts. By virtue of their positions. That kind of thinking may have been behind the Corinthian pattern of those who believed that those who spoke in tongues in Corinth were more spiritual than people who didn't speak in tongues. And that kind of thinking still pervades even today. Some, in, some, in some circles, you're considered more spiritual if you've spoken in tongues as opposed to not speaking in tongues. Same way it was in Corinth. And what Paul's alluding to, at least in Corinth, at least in Corinth, is that that mindset didn't originate in the Bible. It didn't originate with the apostles. It didn't originate on the day of Pentecost, the Acts chapter 2 experience. That mindset that was brought into the church at Corinth actually originated in the mystery religions of Corinth and surrounding Greece. So he's exercised, he wants to exercise caution here that we not bring a pagan idea of spirituality into Christianity. Later on he's going to say, he's going to come right out and say, all oh, don't speak in tongues, do they? No. Oh, don't prophesy, do they? No. People have different spiritual gifts. And we can't gauge a person's spirituality just by the way that they're gifted. Now, sometimes in today's culture, particularly Protestant culture, well, I guess across the board in Christianity, this has subtly come in through the back door in a different way. Sometimes people think that if, if one is gifted as a pastor teacher, they're inherently more spiritual. Now, my wife's not here this morning. She's in the nursery, so there's nobody laughing in the back over here over that. But that's not true. 
It, your giftedness doesn't make you inherently more spiritual. It's just a gift, and you've got to use it. And to the degree you're using it, that's where the spirituality is going to come in. To the degree that you're rightly related to the Holy Spirit is the degree that the spirituality come in. Not your giftedness. So just because you're a pastor or an evangelist or the president of a seminary or a professor in a seminary or an elder or a deacon, that doesn't mean you're inherently more spiritual. Far from it. He goes on to say here that the Holy Spirit is not going to lead someone to say Jesus is accursed. Anathema is the Greek word there. You've heard that before. On the other hand, one cannot acknowledge that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, a non-Christian may utter those words. They may be words on a paper, and they may be an actor in a play or something. They read, okay, Jesus is Lord. That, that's not what this passage is saying, that a non-believer couldn't say those words. But a non-Christian can't utter those words and mean it apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. So idols and paganism are not a source of truth. They're not a proper source of truth. The Holy Spirit, Paul's saying, is, a source, is the source of truth. So before he gets into the discussion about specifics, he gives us a principle. Truth doesn't come from your culture in paganism. It comes from the Holy Spirit. We could say the same thing today. And we may not call it paganism, but it really is in a large way. It's just outside the plan of God. That's, that's a general word for that. They're worshiping something other than Jesus Christ. We can't allow things from the culture to unduly influence us inside the church. Now, this doesn't mean we don't minister to the culture. Of course we do. Of course we need to be sensitive to the culture. We live in the 21st century. We need to minister to 21st century people. Nothing wrong with that. There's everything right with that. But we can't allow certain things in the culture to become part of the church. What he's saying in these first three verses is that the Holy Spirit is the source of truth. So before we go any further, Corinthians, before we go any further, Houstonians, the Holy Spirit is the source of truth, not necessarily the culture. That, that doesn't mean there can't be some truth in the culture. There's certain, certain truths in how you might build a bridge, you know, some mathematics and things like that. But I'm talking about spiritual truths here. Then we're going to get more to the heart of it in verses 4 through 7. He's already set us up now. The Holy Spirit is the source of truth. But the Holy Spirit is also the source of something else. And we're going to see he's also the source of these spiritual gifts that you guys, Corinthians, have been arguing about. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Here Paul introduces an extremely important topic that's going to flow through these next three chapters. And that is diversity. There is diversity in a local church. But the diversity is always grounded in unity. And that unity is there because we all worship the same Lord. Oh, how many, how many problems in Christianity could be solved? How much disunity could be solved in our church, in the church at large, if we would just realize we all have the same boss? We are all rescued by the same Savior. He only went to the cross once, but he had each of us in mind. It's the same Lord. We all have the same Lord. That's where the unity comes from. So there is diversity, yes, and we applaud the diversity. 
all kinds of diversity. But we need to remember that diversity is grounded. That's what makes us the body of Christ, is we have the same Lord. Isn't this what our Lord prayed the night before he was crucified in the garden? This is one of the things that, or actually as he was on his way to the garden. He prays that us, that we who be saved by the disciples' ministry, would be one just like the Father is one with him. That there would be a unity between his children. As a father, one of the greatest blessings that I have ever experienced is the fact that my children get along. That's a great blessing. Tremendous. It would grieve me greatly if they didn't. It grieves me greatly, greatly, when I see individuals in our local church not getting along. And I tell you what, if it grieves me, you know it grieves God. You know it grieves the Holy Spirit. Because He is ultimately your Father. God the Father is your Father. He wants His children to get along. Now, Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in the truth. But we should be getting along. And what He says here is spiritual gifts vary. We all have, there's, there's a great, great variety here. My giftedness is not necessarily the same as yours. But we worship the same Lord, don't we? There are varieties of gifts, but the same Holy Spirit. One Holy Spirit who gave those gifts. The varieties of ministries. But God's the one that's working in each case in these ministries. So there's to be no cause for pride because you have been gifted in one way and somebody else hasn't. It should never be a source of pride. The possessor of the spiritual gift has no cause for pride. None whatsoever. The one who functions in a particular ministry no matter what it is, has absolutely no cause for pride. None whatsoever. Why? Because God is the one that gifted each of us in accordance with His will and His good pleasure. And He is the one that's working through that gifted individual to accomplish His purpose. It's a pretty good deal, really. God gifts us, and then He empowers us. And all we have to do is say yes. Where's the room for arrogance in all that? There really isn't any. God does the work through willing vessels. Are we to be prideful because we're willing to be used? Is that a source? Should that be a source of pride? Because I say, Lord, use me. I think not. Part of a willing attitude is humility. Something that, by the way, I don't think the Corinthians had. Hopefully they'll have it later. I don't think they had it when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. There's a principle that's revealed in this first section that if properly understood will solve most of the problems and controversies that exist today over speaking in tongues in the local church. Now, there's, we're going to talk about it a lot more. But I think there's a principle that's introduced here at the beginning that will solve most of the problems. And that principle is found in verse 7 which in my view is the key verse that unlocks our understanding of all three chapters, is verse 7. This is a verse that will help us to understand how spiritual gifts are supposed to function in a local church and then therefore to evaluate the way that they are functioning in a local church to tell whether it's good or not good. I'm told, I've just been told this by people who work at banks. My sister-in-law worked at a bank for a long time, and one of the ways that they taught her to spot counterfeit currency was to study the real thing. 
the more they studied the real thing, when a counterfeit bill came across, they would catch it. And I guess it happens more than we think in these banks. They'll catch a counterfeit bill that comes up because they count the real stuff. They see the real stuff so much. So what I want to do, and actually what Paul's going to do here too, he's going to start off with what the real deal is. And then if what you're seeing doesn't match up to this, then it may be something, but it's not necessarily a spiritual gift. It may be something. We'll start with that. But it's not necessarily a spiritual gift. Look at verse 7 again. But to each one is given... The manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The verb is passive here, the verb given, meaning that we don't strive to achieve a particular spiritual gift, but that God in His sovereignty and in His wisdom gives at least one spiritual gift to each and every person who has personally placed their faith and their faith alone in Jesus Christ to forgive their sins, and to grant them eternal life. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit has given you a spiritual gift. That's the each one part. And the given is passive, meaning it's done to us. We don't do it. We don't give anything. You don't go to anybody else to have a spiritual gift imparted. Now, we've had a couple ordination services here, and as part of that ordination service, we would lay hands on the gentlemen who have been ordained into formal ministry, that's not imparting a spiritual gift. That's recognizing that that individual has that spiritual gift. The person already has it. Now, through the testing and the examination that they go through, then that person has, has demonstrated that they have a certain level of maturity in the Christian faith because, Paul, faith, because Paul said you're not to lay hands on people too soon. The whole church will suffer if that's the case. But it doesn't impart a spiritual gift. It recognizes it. God the Holy Spirit is the one who gives it. But to each one is given. That's all of us here. I assume that you've all trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life. I hope I'm not making a false assumption this morning with that. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Now, in context, he's talking about spiritual gifts, so it's not hard to figure out what he means here by the manifestation. But this word phanerosis, the word translated manifestation, means open or public proclamation as opposed to the Greek phrase encrypto, which is something that's done more privately or secretly. You probably hear an English word there when I say encrypto. It's encryption. Spiritual gifts are to be openly and publicly manifested. They're not to be encrypto. Encrypto is a biblical phrase. It's used in other places, but that's not what's used here. So that's one of the first things, actually it's the second thing in this verse. First is we realize the Holy Spirit gave one to each of us. The second thing with this word phanerosis, and by the way I realize I'm going over a little bit more of the Greek grammar and the Greek text than we normally do. Sometimes it's necessary. And this is one of those times I want you to hang in there with me because this is a time where I think you need to hear it. By the way, I don't do exegesis from the pulpit. I do exegesis in my office. I do exposition from the pulpit. We study from the original languages. I don't necessarily teach from the original language. I teach from, Eng by, from English because I don't know how many of you really know ancient Greek or ancient Hebrew. It would be the same thing as going to a restaurant, let's say a very fine restaurant, where you're going to pay $50, $60, $75 for your meal. When I go to that restaurant, I just want my meal presented to me in an edible form so I can be nourished by it. I can enjoy it and be nourished by it. I don't have to have the chef come out and say, we got this chicken from Arkansas. I got the butter from California. 
I, I stirred it all together. After I took all the insides out, I, I stirred it all together. I got these eggs out and I cooked it at 100 or 350 degrees for 45 minutes. You know, then I put this little glaze on top. I don't need all that. I'm, I'm glad that he knows that. And I'm glad he prepared it properly. But, but be, believe me, there is a proper preparation here. But oftentimes, unless it's necessary, I don't tell you what the Greek words mean. Most of the time they're translated fairly well. But this time I think it's important because it helps us. Phanorosis is the opposite of encrypto. It's the opposite of encryption. It's publicly manifested. It's never something private, public. What we receive from the Holy Spirit is meant to be manifested publicly, not encrypto, not secretly. And then the final phrase, proston sumferon, which is translated for the common good, means to the common advantage or profit of others, not merely for our own advantage, and not merely for our own profit, and not for my own self-fulfillment. I was not gifted, and, and I just it's a grace thing. Nobody earns or deserves it. I mean, anybody's better or worse than anybody else, but I wasn't gifted in the way God gifted me for my benefit. I wasn't gifted so that I could save my money and go buy a cabin in Montana and read my Bible and do my exegesis and keep it all to myself. That's not why you're gifted with the giftedness that I've been given. I've been gifted not for me. I've been gifted for you. And you've been gifted too. Guess what? Not for you. You've been gifted to help me. And the people that are sitting next to you, in front of you, and behind you. You see where the whole unity thing comes in? The whole idea of spiritual gifts is interwoven with the idea of unity. I'm here to help you. You're here to help me. Some in a more public way. Some in a way that may not be known as much, but it's not necessarily in crypto, in secret. In other words, it's not just for you. That's what the in crypto means. If a spiritual gift is functioning strictly for your own benefit, it may be something. But it's not a spiritual gift. It may be something, but not a spiritual gift. The preeminent New Testament scholar, Anthony Thistleton, commenting on this particular verse, wrote these words, The Spirit produces visible effects for the profit of all, not for self-glorification. If the latter is prominent, suspicion is invited. But if you find yourself exercising what you believe is a gift, but you're only doing it for yourself, and it is having no benefit for others, it's not for the common good, then it at least should be suspicious. At least it should be suspicious. So here's the first principle with respect to spiritual gifts. And we're going to talk about a lot more. But if we get this one down, it's going to go a long way toward our understanding of this subject. A spiritual gift is given by the Holy Spirit. It's to be publicly manifested, not privately practiced. I want to make sure you're clear on this. There are certain gifts like giving and, and helps where it may just between you, between you and another person, you don't stand up before the church and say, you know what I did for her. You know the benevolence I just gave to him or, or whatever it may be. That's, that's way out of line. 
But what one's spiritual giftedness ends up having something to do with another person in the body of Christ. That's what I mean by publicly manifested and not privately practiced. So it's given by the Holy Spirit, publicly manifested, not privately practiced, and is designed to be for the common advantage or the common profit of others, not for our own profit and not for our own self-fulfillment. Now, there may be other things in the Christian life that are that way, my own particular quiet walk with God. I'm not saying that there's nothing private in the Christian life, but what we're talking about here is spiritual giftedness. If someone's engaging in activity that is completely private between them and God, and it's not for the common advantage of all, then whether or not it's a legitimate activity is not the issue in these three chapters. What Paul will say is it's not a spiritual gift. 